G'day, it's Phil Edwards, Vision CEO here, with a quick invitation to become part of this amazing beacon of hope called Vision. Together we can put our love into action to help people of all kinds build or rebuild their lives on the truth of God. Please consider the part you can play during our upcoming Visionathon appeal, remembering that it's your support that makes Vision possible, including this podcast. Audio on demand from Vision Christian Media. Coming up today on The Story. Well, we had went there, you know, we were going to bring the gospel to the Indians and what we weren't going to do. But India changed us. We had to learn and understand other people, you know. And I think it was the Spirit of God leading us to see that here we were, these proud Australians, thinking we had it all together and we had to realise that it was not like that at all. The Story. The story. G'day, I'm Jimmy Colfax. Welcome to The Story. Well, Joan and Bill Grosser are quite an extraordinary couple. They've known each other since Joan was born, and when they had only been married three months, they were challenged to go to India as missionaries. Young and enthusiastic, they thought they would change India, but they soon found out India would change them. This began their adventurous life of service to the Lord that has taken them to various parts of Australia and the world. We're going to hear their story today as Joan has a chat with Eric Scatterbo. Welcome to the program, Joan Grosser. Thank you. Glad to have you with us and you're joining us from Perth, Western Australia. That's right. The best city in Australia. <laughs> Alrighty, well let's start all the way from the beginning. You and Bill have known each other since you were born. How was that? Uh, well, Bill's known me uh, for four years longer than I've known him. Um, yes, he was four when I was born. Oh, okay. <laughs> <laughs> so he remembers me in a pram. And your fathers know each other? Yes, my dad was best man at Bill's dad's wedding. And so were you kind of destined to be together? <laughs> well, you know, we always say I was promised at birth, but um, Bill's not so, quite so sure about that. But anyway, <laughs> but uh, I think... You know, as we grew up, we had a lot in common. My dad was an amazing uh, Bible teacher and um, just fantastic with young people. So we had a lot of time together at the different functions that dad did and the Bible studies that he ran. But um, I was 16 and Bill was 20 uh, when God really came into our lives. Um, Bill was at Keswick Convention and um, realized that, wow, if Jesus had done all this for me, I'm going to give my life over to him. So that was his commitment. But my commitment was more, I had everything going for me, and yet something was missing. And in desperation one night, I just called out to God. And both of us never realized at the time that it was the Spirit of God coming into our lives, and it totally changed our lives. And that's what drew us together, really, was um, our relationship with God was uh, connected us very much. So you were friends? growing up together when did you become a couple um, yeah 16 and 20 we started dating as bill says we were on a tennis court when we found out what had happened to each other and the spiritual experience we had and um yeah it ended up in a love set but as bill says we went to juice many times before <laughs> uh, we got married seven years later <laughs> well there must be more to that story uh, we'll have bill share but uh let's continue with your story so You were a couple, and then eventually you were married seven years later? Seven years later, yes. 
I had done my nursing training and Bill had been through Bible college and completed his bricklaying apprenticeship and now had his own business. And everything was going great for us, you know. We were expecting a baby. We were in a fantastic church, which was really alive and vibrant. Bill had a great um, business. We had bought a house we were going to have paid off within four years. You know, life was just great. And then suddenly we're challenged to go to India in a mission team. And it's like, what? Not us. You know, we're, we're not in the place where we can at this stage. So what happened? Well, 18 months later, we were leaving on the boat for... India. but um, So the Lord worked that, on your hearts? Yes, he certainly did. Yeah, and we knew that we were meant to go. So we went to India with a 10-month-old baby. But the interesting thing to us was, you know, in our youth work, we had led many young people to the Lord, but we had never led an adult to the Lord, to relationship with Jesus. And we really prayed that before we went, we would have just one person where God could confirm that we were meant to go by mm-hmm. leading one person to the Lord. Well, the sixth person came to know the Lord in our cabin on the boat just before we left. Oh, wow. Yeah. Kind of leaving it to the last moment there. <laughs> yeah. Well, yes, there were six people over that time, one every month, and it was just just God's confirmation that we were meant to go. Now, how did you go from thinking that you were kind of set in a comfortable life in Perth to God changing your mind? I think... We had both said, Lord, what do you want us to do? We're prepared to do what you want us to do. And I guess it just came out of the blue when this um, uh, person came who had been a missionary in India and just challenged us to go on this two-year mission trip. In those days, mission trips were two years, Mm -hmm. nothing less. And why did they challenge you two in particular? Um, I think probably um, the guy was Colin Tilsley and he saw leadership potential within us mm-hmm. um yeah we done showed initiative in many ways and so yes he felt that we god had laid his hand on us to do that and so you had a 10 month old baby when you went to india we did we had a 10 month old baby yes and we spent six months uh, what we did in india was we were selling gospels on the streets mm-hmm. we went in a team of 10 uh to chennai madras as it was then and we were there for six months, and then um, they wanted a team to go to Calcutta. Mm-hmm. So we drove in an old car all the way from Madras to Calcutta, and then we were to lead a team there. But the team didn't eventuate, so we ended up working with the Indian people. And I think it was right from that time that um, we fell in love with India, if you like. Um, God gave us a real vision for India. Mm-hmm. And in those um, two years, two and a half years that we were in Calcutta, um, Bill spent his time on the street selling Gospels, and he sold 360,000 Gospels on the streets with Indian people. Mm-hmm. Um, it was yeah, an amazing time. A lot of pressure, but at the same time, it was, um, it was good. Okay, so this was 1966. Now, why were you selling Gospels? I thought maybe being missionaries, you might give them away. <laughs> That's a very good point. See, if we gave them away, they'd be used for toilet paper and for wrapping up nuts when you bought them on the street. Um, that's what they'd be used for. Unless mm-hmm. people paid for them, they wouldn't value them. Oh, I see. And so they only paid oh, a very little amount, Yeah, but they were valued. So the purpose was for them to value having the Bible. Yes. Okay, so when you went to India, you thought that you were going to change India. Yeah. 
But what happened? Well, we went there, you know, we were going to bring the gospel to the Indians and what we weren't going to do. But as we said, India changed us. We had to learn and understand other people, you know. Mm -hmm. And I think it was the Spirit of God leading us to see that here we were, these proud Australians, thinking we had it all together and we were coming to convert the heathen. Hmm. And we had to realise that it was not like that at all and that these were real people just like ourselves and we became very close to the Indian people. Um, it was a very special time of getting to understand who we were and understand who they were and that is why we say we've got a love affair with India from that day to this. Hmm. And how were you changed? I guess made you humbler. Oh, yes, definitely. You know, one of the things we we used to say in Australia back in those days about people coming from England on the 10-pound ships, Mm -hmm. and we'd say that, oh, whinging poms, because they're always talking about how wonderful England was. (laughs) And when we got to India, we realised that we were whinging Aussies. (laughs) Um, You know, it was much better in Australia and all that sort of stuff. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, we were very humbled by it all when we met beautiful people, absolutely lovely people. Um, and and here we were, we thought we had all the answers. So mm. there was a lot of pride had to be dealt with along the way. You're listening to The Story. Our guest today is Joan Grosser from Perth in Western Australia. She's sharing about her and her husband's life of service to the Lord. We'll hear what happens next in their lives when we return. The story. If this program has highlighted something you'd like prayer for, we'd love to pray for you. Call 1 800 Pray For Me. That's 1 800 772 936. It's a free call. Or text 0401 132 888. Hi, I'm Jimmy Colfax and this is The Story. Our guest today is Joan Grosser from Perth in WA. And as we heard before the break, she's sharing about her and her husband's life of service to the Lord that has taken them to many parts of Australia and the world. Now we're going to find out what happened next in their lives after they arrived in India as missionaries. With Bill selling those Gospels on the streets, there was a, a correspondence course that they could do. And mm-hmm. we had an office there where people could um, send in the correspondence course. And it was a real joy to see people come to know the Lord as they studied the Bible and saw who Jesus really was. And that was a blessing. Mm-hmm. So was there a spiritual hunger that you encountered? No. No, I would say it was the ones and twos. Oh, okay. Just a couple here and there. Yes. I think um, when we look back on that time, that was the beginning of our relationship with India. You see, when we got to the end of our time and we'd sold the Gospels and it was time to come home, we realised that it was the beginning because we were asked by missionaries to stay. We had visas to stay. We could have stayed in India as missionaries. Mm -hmm. But we really felt that we had to come home and support the local people to reach their own people because we didn't understand their culture. We didn't speak their language well enough to Mm -hmm. be able to get to the deep things of God. So that's what happened. We came home to spend from then right through these last 50 years totally supporting what was happening in India. And we feel that's what God called us to do so that the Indian people could reach their own people in a much better way than what we could. Yeah, so you kind of changed gears instead of you being the ones to minister to the Indians. <laughs> That's right. 
you yes. kind of transferred to a support role where you support local Indians to reach other Indians. Yes, yes. So that was kind of a change yes. in thinking. Very much a change in thinking. I think, you know, back in those days, we had all the answers mm. um, and missionaries went overseas because we had it all together. But no, I think we all needed to be changed very much. Now, you said that this kind of began a love affair with the people of Calcutta. Uh, yes. What did you love so much about the people there? Um, I think it was because God placed it in our hearts. Mm -hmm. um, we were back there at Christmas time, and as I sat in the car being driven out to where we used to live, um, I said to Sudarandran, you know, something of my heart lives here hmm. among the people, understanding something of the people. Um, it's been very special getting close to the people. To start with, when we used to go back every couple of years and to encourage and support, it was always, oh, they always sort of asked us the white fellas with all the money. And hmm. we couldn't, we wanted to cut that out and say, we are partners together. You hmm. do what you do. We do what we do, and together we partner. And so that's what has become our thing. And our last visit, which was this Christmas, um, we realised that with the team that we work with there, that they're now accepting us as equals rather than mm -hmm. we're the white fellas. And it was just so good to see that, that oneness mm -hmm. together. Yeah, working together as a team, as opposed yes. to you kind of being on a higher level or them seeing you mm. as the people with all the money. Mm. Yes, because we were there just not long after the British Raj, and so there was still that thing of the white fellas and the Indians. Mm. Um, but yes, that's changed now. It's yeah, lovely. As we mentioned, you first went there back in the 60s. Yes. When you came back to Australia, you began to become involved in local churches? Yes, we came back. We were invited to go to a church that was struggling, um, and we got totally involved there. And the interesting thing was that... Um, they, it was an English migrant suburb where people were buying houses in England and coming out and finding that it was really what we called Pommyville hmm. at that stage. Um, and people would meet us in the in the street and they'd say, excuse me, are you a real Australian? Are you an Australian? <laughs> and I'd say, yes, I am. Oh, you're the first one I've met. Um, and that was how it was. So we um, got labelled as the Australian Embassy in Linwood. Um, oh, yeah. But it was a... It was an amazing time because these people were displaced, they were lonely, they were mm -hmm. homesick. It was a, a, a country that was very different from their own. And so God opened an amazing door for for his light to come into families, whole families. We ran a youth group that just grew and grew. It was just amazing. Um, we The church was next door to a school mm -hmm. and we told the principal one day, um, we're going to have to take this over one day. We're using three of your classrooms on a Sunday as it is, but we want the whole school one day, hmm. um, which was a dream. Oh. <laughs> yeah, so that was an amazing time. We were there from 69 until 75. So ministering to people while still having a heart for India. Definitely, definitely. And the heart for India really ramped up the year 2000, and I've mentioned this because this was a key turning point, if you like, in that there were two young boys, two babies were born at the same age of two of our children. Mm -hmm. And um, one of them, Santanu, he was married and his wife died of cancer at 29 years of age. Mm. And he felt that God was calling him to help his neighbours and people in his area understand about terminal illness because it was something people didn't understand and so he 
little bit by little bit began what is now rumor Abadona Hospice. Okay, and so now he was kind of like your son, an adopted son, would you yes. say? Yes, he, he's our Indian son, if you like. Mm-hmm. And uh, when he told us what his heart's dream was, and he was embarrassed to tell us because he thought it was a crazy dream, we said it's not a crazy dream and we'll help you to get there. So we brought him to Australia and had him um, trained in palliative care. Mm-hmm. And uh, then he went back and I remember when he was here in Australia, he was standing with me at a school that we had started some 20 years before and he stood there looking at this amazing place, big uh, Swan Christian High School and Midland Christian School and he said, you're telling me that 20 years ago just a few people got together and this is what you've got today? Mm -hmm. I said, yes, and it's not just this one. We've got around, I don't know, four, five, six schools. Really, he said. So I said, come on, what's on your mind? Do you think that we could have a hospice in Calcutta? Well, I said, yes, of course you could. Hmm. (laughs) Knowing that God can do miracles as he did for the school, he can do it in in India. And that's what he did. Wow, fantastic. So now this hospice in India, this is really what you've been involved in for the last uh, several years. Yes, we have. But that's not the only thing. I mean, you, you just don't do one thing. You do lots of things. <laughs> <Yes>. Anyway, um, <laughs> um, yes, that has been amazing in these last 20 years. To mm-hmm. start with one man who felt God was calling him to do this, to being a place now where there are 16 paid workers anyway and lots of others who are involved. And it's interesting that we went there this year and... I individually spoke to most of those workers and said to them, now, why are you here? Some of them have been there 18 years and they look at me and they say, it's because it's in my heart. Mm. They said, "We, I came here and what I saw, I have never seen before. And it was the compassion and love of Christ. Mm. And that's what drew them. It was so different that they were drawn. And it's just the stories of each of those people and what God has done in their lives is just, Absolutely awesome. Now, I have to admit, when I heard that the ministry was dealing with terminally ill people, that isn't something that a lot of people would raise their hand up and say, yes, I want to be a part of that. I mean, it's kind of depressing, but yet uh, it really tugs your heart. It certainly did. And it's amazing because, you know, we often say it's easy money to orphans overseas because you see that they've got a future ahead of them. They can be used by God. More positive. But to support terminally ill where they're just going to die? Hmm. But, yeah. oh, goodness, the ministry uh, to these people is just just amazing. Just one little one that happened uh, after we left. This dear lady who I'd been to visit, and uh, I went to give her a sari, and she said, no, I can't take this sari, because I, I couldn't understand her being gawly enough to know why she couldn't wear it. And I saw her a few days later, and I went to give her a hug, and I got a shock. She was just a skeleton. Mm. This lady was dying of colon cancer. And she said to the worker who was visiting her in her home, will you take a photo of me holding my kangaroo, which we'd given her, and the bunch of flowers that the hospice had taken her? She said, I want to say to the people in Australia, thank you for caring enough for me Mm. to help me. Uh, She said, here's a photo of me just to let you remember these people in India who you are caring for. Very, very special. Mm -hmm. Why was there a need for this hospice? What would have happened if they didn't have it? 
Because the people we're dealing with, they're very poor. They cannot afford to go to a doctor. They cannot afford to go to hospital. Mm -hmm. And if they do, in the poor hospitals, there's so many people. It's like the government of India said, we don't have enough money to look after the people who can live, Mm -hmm. let alone look after the people who are going to die. Oh, wow. So there isn't much for them. And so to reach out to the poorest of the poor, the lowest of the low, and treat them as equals, was it, it's, it's amazing. Mm-hmm. People who visit from here in Australia and go over, uh, one particular businessman, he's a 50-year-old retired businessman, and he went because he said, if I'm going to support this, I've got to see what they do. And he went on a home visit, and I have a picture of him where he is absolutely crying Mm. and he went out and sat in the car halfway through the uh, interview in the home and he said I have never seen compassion like this in my whole life Mm. and that's what it's about it's powerful it's reaching into the hearts of people who've never known love and compassion like this and they're cared for physically spiritually emotionally in amazing ways in fact I've often said if I get cancer I want to go to India to be nursed oh really yeah. Yes. So we, do, we did along the way bring uh, Santanu to Australia to again to have him. Um, oh, he trained through Flinders University in Adelaide mm-hmm. uh, and has a postgrad degree in palliative care. He's not a doctor. He has two university degrees: one in commerce, one in arts. But now he has that postgrad in palliative care. Mm-hmm. Um, and the rest of that story is just amazing. He um, kept on saying after all through the years that he would never marry again because it would take him away from the vision that God had given him. Mm-hmm. And we kept saying to him, you need to marry again because you need a helpmate. You need someone alongside you, maybe a doctor or a nurse or a social worker or somebody in physiotherapist, someone like that to help you. Well, God did send this beautiful lady and he's been married for three and a half years to her. She's a registered nurse. And... Her testimony is amazing. She's leading people to the Lord because she saw at the hospice what she never saw in the government hospitals in Calcutta. She saw something and she said all her life she'd been looking for answers and at the hospice she found it. And so many of the people who are working at the hospice now have found that out. So somebody who's diagnosed with a terminal illness then goes to this hospice and is cared for in practical ways. And do they find out about Jesus They do, and this is the beauty of it. Um, Santanu says, I will not preach the gospel. I am there to live the gospel. Hmm. So he never preaches at anybody, which is absolutely so important now, and we realize that in the condition, the things that are happening in India now, um, that he will not preach, but the person who, you know, is so destitute and so much in need of help And when this help comes completely free of charge and with loving, caring hands, they say, why are you doing this? Mm -hmm. And Santanu would say, well, because that's what my Lord did. Who is your Lord? My Lord is Jesus. Tell me about Jesus. I want to know about him. And that's how it happens. Oh, so they start the conversation. Yeah. It's just so special because it's told me about Jesus. And and then he's able to open the door. Mm-hmm. And of course, they're thinking about life after death because, unfortunately, they know they're going to die. Yes, yes. So yes. they're open to spiritual conversations, obviously. Yeah. 
Yeah, and, and that's what's happened. And that's why, you know, the, the 16 workers who are working there, most of those came because they saw something that they responded to. Either one of their relatives had had cancer and was cared for there mm-hmm. or some of the um, Santanu's friends from school who said to him, oh, for goodness sake, forget about her, get yourself another wife and go on with your music career, mm-hmm. which was uh, his career before his uh, wife got cancer. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And now these people are so dedicated, so dedicated to what they're doing. And they're all saying, it is in my heart. Mm. And practically, you help to support and finance the hospice yes. through donors here in Australia? Yes. Well, at the opening of the building that we built, uh, the hospice building, which is really an administration centre and a place where Sartre and his wife live, um, we had Dr Rosalie Shaw, who in Australia was one of the first to start palliative care, um, and especially here in Western Australia. And we speak at the opening... And she looked at Santanu and she said to Santanu, you do what you do best, which is caring for people who are dying. Grosses, you go home to Australia and raise the funds so Santanu never has to think about money. Mm-hmm. And that's what we've done for 20 years. Wow, that's fantastic. Well, this is the first part of our conversation. Unfortunately, we've run out of time for this first part, but I just want to let listeners know that if they would like to find out more about this hospice that Jonah has been talking about in India, they can go to the website, rumahospice.org. Once again, the website is ruma, R-U-M-A, hospice.org. You can go there and find out more information about this wonderful palliative care ministry in India. Joan Grosser, thank you so much for sharing this first part of the conversation. Oh, that's fine. But I want to tell you next time about the mangoes. Okay, you'll have to tell us about the mangoes next time. Is that all right? Yes, yes, that's fine. Well, as we just heard, Joan Grosser has a lot more to share with us. So we invite you to join us again next time for more of Joan sharing about her and her husband Bill's life of service to God. Also, speaking of Bill, he'll join us next time to share his side of the story and we'll hear about the numerous adventures they've been on in many parts of Australia and the world. They've certainly been a tremendous blessing to many people. They're a good example of what it says in the book of Romans in chapter 12. Be devoted to one another in brotherly and sisterly love Honour one another above yourselves Never be lacking in zeal But keep your spiritual fervour Serving the Lord And share with God's people Who are in need Practice hospitality Amen Meanwhile, if you want to learn more About the hospice ministry in India That is near and dear to the Grosses hearts The website is RumorHospice.org Once again, that's Rumor R-U-M-A Hospice.org Well, until next time, when we'll hear part two of Bill and Joan Gross's story, I'm Jimmy Colfax encouraging you to share your story with someone today. Next time on The Story. Look, I'm married to a woman who looks at things and said, this is terrible, I should do something about it. I'm going to do something about it. I look at the same thing and tend to go, well, you know, it's terrible, somebody should do something. (laughs) So um, I don't get off the hook. Bill and Joan Grosser have lived a remarkable life of service to the Lord and has led them to many adventures in various parts of Australia and the world. They've been involved in everything from Christian education in WA to helping out a ministry to terminally ill patients in India. We'll hear more of their story next time. The story. Just another way vision is connecting faith to life. 
Thanks for taking time to listen to this audio on demand from Vision Christian Media. To find out more about us, go to vision.org.au.